0: Hello to all our cyber pals, and welcome to the Proofpoint Discarded podcast. I'm Selena Larson, Senior Threat Intelligence Analyst on the Proofpoint Threat Research team, here with my co-host, Krista Gearing.
1: Hey, everybody. We are here today with a special Ask Me Anything episode in which we and our guests, the VP of Threat Research over here at Proofpoint, Sherrod DeGrippo, and another of our fearless leaders, Daniel Blackford, Manager within Threat Research, answer questions we've received from our discarded listeners. Welcome back, Sharon and Daniel. We are so excited
0: to have you on the podcast because this is a very special Ask Me Anything. And since both of you have been on the podcast before and we have so many questions, let's just dive right in.
2: Uh, I believe our first question will be from Sherrod. Yes. So the first question is to all of you, what is your favorite protocol?
3: I'll just jump in here. <laughs>
2: Daniel, what's your favorite protocol?
3: It's a pretty boring answer, but uh, DNS, right? super flexible backbone of the internet. You can use it to uh, make things point to wrong places if you're a threat actor, or uh, maybe use it as uh, C2 comms. So, uh, you know, it's simple to implement, flexible, DNS.
2: All right, that's a good choice. Selena, what's your favorite
0: protocol? I like HTTPS because it made the web so much safer.
2: That's nice. Those are good protocols. My favorite <laughs> protocol is NTP. Lately, I changes all the time because of that awesome article that recently came out about the timekeepers of NTP. Oh, yeah. It's highly controversial, highly dramatic. What what a community. The NTP development and uh, timekeeping community is full of characters. So NTP is my new fave. And... I don't have one, guys. I am I am equal opportunity to be wooed by
1: any and all protocols as to why they should be my favorite. So
2: As long as SMTP isn't your favorite, then I will accept any answer. SMTP is the worst protocol. Let's deprecate it. Wow. Harsh. I'm
3: pretty sure Joe Wise said SMTP was his favorite, so you might have to have a conversation.
2: There are going to be tears. There tears. I'm going to convince him why SMTP is uh, deprecated and should be eradicated from the internet. Block SMTP. Excellent. Yeah.
0: Great. Well, on that note, our first question from listeners comes from Mike Raji. Who do you blame for the phrase, quote, thrunting?
2: Okay. So <laughs> first, I am fully supportive of thrunting. It is a portmanteau of the word threat hunting, thrunting. I think it's good and important and we should use it more. Um, I think Kellen is the originator of Thrunting, and then uh, Josh Miller, a.k.a. Chicago Scheiber Yoshi, is the ultimate promoter and proponent and fan of the word Thrunting. And this was widely discussed on Twitter, a platform
0: of which Krista is not a part of, which I think (laughs) you have made it to the downfall of Twitter without actually getting one, so congrats. That was always my goal. Yeah, Mike also asks, what plans do you have for getting a Twitter?
1: Okay, so first things first, right? The blame or glory, depending on your perspective, for all of this can be squarely placed on Josh Miller's uh, shoulders. So Mm -hmm. I'm throwing him under the bus right here. I have no plans for an official Twitter at this time. I'm going to continue to lurk in the dark and we'll probably wait and see how that space is going to play out. Really, I think that we should revive some like long defunct social media platform at this point. Live journal, live journal, live journal, live journal. Sure, that, anything really, I think might be better.
2: Can I do a quick shout out to everyone that knows me from Live Journal and other projects that were associated with Live Journal? TBT, share it. I love it, yes. Live Journal. Did you have a Zanga? I didn't have a Zanga, I was deep, I was all in on Live Journal. I was fully committed to LJ and LJ Drama.
3: Sweet. So uh, picking up with a third Mike Raji question, uh, do you know Kyle Davis, Sherrod? And is it true that there has been a Kyle Davis ban of the Discarded podcast?
2: Kyle Davis owes me money. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, Kyle Davis also
0: donated to my dog's rescue. So um, he will always
2: be welcome on
0: the Discarded podcast.
3: Maybe he gave you Sherrod's money.
2: (laughs) If that's the case, if he donated to Ben Ben the money that he owes me, it was... $40,000, so that was nice (laughs) of him. That's about how much it costs to raise a dog.
1: It is. Ben Ben's an expensive (laughs) little guy. (laughs) So our next question is from who I'm going to call APT Greg, or also affectionately known as Greggles. And this is for everybody here. Who's the most eye-roll-inducing or boring threat actor or malware? Like, you see them, a report or a campaign, and you just think, ugh. I
0: can go first. I have to say, we had Sarah... On the podcast talking about the island of misfit malware. And I do have to say that oftentimes I don't have any hate for any of them, but when it's like a fun and interesting attack chain or super fun and interesting lore, and then it's like Agent Tesla or form book, then I'm just like, ugh, this could have been so much better. But yeah, that's that's what I would have to say. I mean, they're fun little misfits, but sometimes I'm just like, really? Agent Tesla, come on. This could have been so much more exciting.
1: How about you, Daniel? <laughs>
3: So I don't think Greggles or some of our other colleagues are really gonna appreciate this answer, but no. I roll I, I roll my eyes a lot relative to APT reporting. And it's not because they're it's not because they're boring. It's not because they're boring, it's just because they have taken so much of the the focus away from what is actually hitting the majority of people's inboxes, right? Companies want to prioritize APT actors when it's what, like maybe 2% of our overall cu- customer base that sees like regular APT activity. I just feel like, you know, if you're trying to mitigate risk, maybe focus on what's being delivered to you.
2: In the immortal words of Cher DeGrippo, age 44, APT, shmay <gasps> It's okay. APT, shmay PT.
0: I won't be offended. It's fine. <laughs> hashtag brunch con,
2: hashtag con. <laughs> We love it. <laughs> I love them both equally, but <laughs> I do like to make fun of APT. It's more, okay, how about this? Crimeware is more fun to work on. APT is more fun to make fun of. Chris is going to kill me. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> yes. Never, never. I'm actually cracking up over here. Okay, so shared then, which one is most eye-roll inducing for you?
2: You know what? I really hate, we don't see it much anymore, but I really think Goo Loader is stupid. I think the name <laughs> is stupid. Mm-hmm. I think the use of Google is stupid. It's just not very creative to me. So I don't like goo loader. I think it's dumb. This question comes from
0: Kyle Eaton, uh, our actual favorite Kyle of the discarded podcast. Mm -hmm. What are some of the more surprising landscape changes that you've seen this year?
2: I mean, for me to to take it kind of hardcore, I think for me, the biggest um, landscape change and concern is obviously the conflict in Ukraine. We started tracking that from day one, doing briefings for customers and feeling really personally affected. I think all of us watching it play out with threat intelligence questions. Um, it's a great example of something we don't really see very often, which is cyber campaigns combined with kinetic impact actually on the ground. And, you know, obviously none of us like seeing those things, but it's very unique and unusual. I was pretty shocked by all of it. I'm shocked that it hasn't been worse from a cyber perspective. I think Ukraine has some really talented talented people. Ukraine has some really talented threat actors. I mean, the fact of the matter is many of the crime war actors operate out of Ukraine um, for years. And so they've been able to defend themselves really well on, on both of those battlefields. So that's been really shocking and troubling, I think, to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so
3: I think that played into the Conti leaks too, right? I think when uh, you have a number of actors operating out of Ukraine, maybe making pro-Russian statements isn't your your wisest
2: choice. 100%. Yeah, that was um an interesting turn. I don't think anyone saw the fracturing of a lot of these crimeware groups because of personal allegiances, because of patriotism, because of a lot of things that none of us in the research community or analyst community could ever have anticipated, partisans within crimeware groups due to personal national alignment, never saw that coming.
3: On a lighter note. <laughs> on a lighter note, something that uh has surprised me is is the fact that people use telephones to call threat actors. <laughs> um, just just the incredible kind of proliferation of what we have uh, affectionately dubbed "toad," telephone oriented attack delivery. You know, when we first saw it kind of being used in the in the uh, Baza uh, attack chains, I was like, "Oh, this is novel. This is this could lead to some drastic outcomes." But it was paired with like incredible tradecraft you know beautifully designed uh, web pages and everything right so there was a lot going on there but we've just seen it kind of uh, explode I think at the peak we were seeing what 600,000 of these things every single day variety of brands just spammed to to corporate inboxes and personal inboxes and, and at the end of the day like threat actors don't continue to use tactics techniques and procedures that don't lead to monetization right don't lead to their stated outcome and what that means is that People somewhere are using their phones. I don't call anyone, <laughs> and and these people are like calling threat actors regularly enough that you know they've scaled operations like crazy.
2: Well, so that that brings us a good point. Um, we have another question from Murtis that asks, "What's the origin story for the Toad name?" So, why don't you give us the the origin story for how Toad was named?
3: I don't, I don't claim any part of that. I think Solita or Krista should relay that story. That's Sam Schulten.
2: Oh, so I was
0: there in the genesis when it happened. I worked on the Toad blog and I actually asked Sam when we got this question from Murtis and here's what he had to say.
4: Toad, the abbreviation, which of course stands for telephone oriented attack delivery, um, originated partially in jest. Um, we did not want another phishing oriented term like vishing or smishing, Um, we wanted a term that spoke more toward the methodology being used than the intent of using the methodology. So because toads can deliver a diverse um, payload, we didn't want to have the connotation associated with fishing uh, that may be misleading. So we wanted to focus primarily on the telephone orientation of
5: the technique.
0: Pivoting back to Kyle, our favorite Kyle Eaton, what is everyone's favorite threat actor to keep track of and
1: or bully? Krista, what about you? Oh, man. So I actually enjoy watching one that isn't even mine to kind of watch over. I kind of cover them sometimes as backup. But it's a TA-453, also known as Charming Kitten. And they're, you know, aligned with Iran. Um, they, to me, sometimes have some of the weirdest lures from an APT group, like claiming the recipient um, of one of their campaigns hit their car or something random like that. They also like to impersonate a lot of real people, so they can be really entertaining. Daniel, how about you?
3: I think historically, my favorite to, to track have been all of the affiliates kind of associated with TrickBot, but that has you know migrated into into its own thing where you know Trickbot is no longer really a um, dominant player in the landscape part of the Conti leaks really was was i think a a narrative coming out of that was that the the main management and development team had has kind of had their power usurped by the ransomware side of the house because it was so lucrative right but my favorite TA to bully, and they're not really a TA, but would just be the Lapsus group because it seemed like they were a bunch of kids in in hoodies in the back of a van or in a basement or something. It was very, it was not difficult at all to get access to their like Telegram channel, and they're like making all these uh, you know high profile claims of ransomware events that uh, were not actually ransomware events. So I don't know, they were just a bunch of punks. It was fun to mess with them.
2: Yeah, Lapsus is really cool. Obviously, I have you know the the team tracks Emotet for me. Um, I pay a lot of really close attention to TA542 Emotet. Um, We just released a blog on Emotet this morning um, in the Thread Insight blog. It is a beautiful rundown, just like a full little guidebook to the fall return of Emotet, which I've been watching at Proofpoint and talking about for years now. And they just keep going. They're almost comforting every time. It's comforting and terrifying every time they come back because it's like, oh, they're still here, but also, oh, no, we have to update detections to make sure we're stopping them. Emotet is a is a real killer. Good for them.
0: They need some, like, walkout music. Like, every time they come back, some very intimidating walkout music. I just have to give a shout out to my favorite TA really fast is TA2722. They are a targeted cybercrime I find them very interesting, consistently spoofing Philippine government entities and targeting entities in the Philippines, Southeast Asia, Middle East, and some others. The payloads aren't that interesting, but the lures and the targeting, I think, are are really great. So we'll throw in a link to to that blog as well as the Emotab blog, for sure.
3: Okay, so Jake, aka Nicastronaut, uh, asks, "Um, I may have missed it on a prior episode, but how do you guys cluster your TA groups? Certain criteria or thresholds to meet? Any insight on tech or tools to support the analysis and connections?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Nick. So, from the e crime perspective, so, so, Krista and I work on different teams. She can talk APT, I'll talk e crime. So, we break down our e crime groups into large crime and small crime. So, if it's large crime, you're talking Emotet, the QBots, the ITS IDs, the initial access brokers, these large groups. Um, that are are, are distributing uh, the malware that we're all familiar with. And then you have small crime that can either be um, targeted stuff. I mentioned TA-2722 earlier uh, or, you know, just a, a smaller group, smaller volume, not necessarily targeted and using more commodity malware. So Formbook, Agent Tesla, Remcoast, NanoCore, et cetera. And so we do have a criteria that you have to meet if you've been tracking an actor over a prolonged period of time, at least three months. You have to have um, established uh, identifiable patterns that you can cluster around. So for example, um, the command and control, the infrastructure that they're using, the sender uh, addresses that they're using, the lures, the themes, the TTPs. And then um, if you are able to definitively track them over an extended period of time with the established um, TTPs, then you are able to um, cluster them. And whether that's uh, as small crime or large crime really depends on um, the type or scope of
1: of, uh, the actor and the behavior that you're seeing. So it was actually pretty funny in thinking about this question um, ahead of time, because it made uh, me realize that on APT, we're actually a little bit less formal than e-crime is with how they handle things. And a lot of times it's more like APT is more formalized than the e-crime team is. Uh, so it's actually pretty interesting to think about this. So with APT, we kind of first cluster unknown activity um, as like an UNC, um, just to kind of like generally put it together. And the analyst then has the ability to promote that to a named threat actor when we believe that we can define three of four points of the diamond model and just to refresh people's memories, you know, adversary infrastructure, capability, and target. And if we can kind of define that in a unique way and we have detections um, to observe repeated activity from that actor, that is when we when we will kind of cluster that all together for APT. But we don't have like a set like a uh, time period that like Selena noted for e-crime um, for tracking. So it's much more about like those attributes um, instead and how and when we see them. Um, to kind of answer that tools kind of part real quickly. Uh, we really like to use like MISP um, as well as you know sandbox, wiki page documentation, uh, you know to document TTPs of the various threat actors so we can track it better. Uh, Maltigo is great, um, Virus Total. I would strongly
2: advocate Trust Groups uh, and Twitter.
3: Oh, the irony!
2: So we've got another one here from John Stoner. Quick, quick story about John Stoner. John Stoner and I worked together at Semantic. We were both managed security services SEs like in 2004, long time ago, when when big yellow semantic was a much bigger threat um, to the landscape (laughs) than it was today. So John Stoner is a former coworker of mine. And he asks, what's the biggest mistake you see repeatedly? I'll take it first. I think for me, the biggest mistake I see repeatedly, actually, is things where there's a variable and the threat actor meant to put some kind of personalization in it and it got all messed up. Um, I also think, speaking of some of the really talented people on the team, some of the really bad like JavaScript obfuscation that's just like really simple, like super like rot 13 level, just super simple obfuscation that I don't think that they're actually trying to obfuscate anything from real people. I think they're just trying to make it a little confusing and you know, we have really talented people on the team that break through that stuff pretty quick. So yeah, really simple obfuscation I think is one of the ones we see over and over again. I just love when they forget to attach a payload
0: Yes. Um, <laughs> Those are so funny. Don't include the zip password if it's a password protected attachment. Just don't include it. I love it. You're, you're breaking your own malware. And we actually did go to Pim Rock So, longtime listeners of the Discarded Podcast may recognize Pim from a couple of our uh, previous shows on Bumblebee malware as well as PlugX malware. And I thought it might be fun to ask him what is a mistake that he sees repeatedly from malware devs. This is what he had to say.
5: So I guess I'll go into um, a little bit of the uh, mistakes that motet has made, since that's kind of the family that I'm most familiar with. So they sometimes have URLs in their macros that don't actually contain HTTP or HTTPS, so they're not valid URLs. So they spend all this time creating campaigns, and they're botched. Um, they've had I've seen a couple times where they incorrectly name files, so Generally, you need a .xls extension for Excel spreadsheets, but they used ZLS in the past. Um, they've done a lot of like weird OPSEC mistakes too. So for instance, they list their regex patterns in the subject rather than the actual subject. So you can kind of see how they're making their subjects there. A lot of times they've just forgotten their attachments too, which is always funny to see that they have you click a attachment that doesn't exist. They've had cases where for their encrypted attachments that are zip files, they don't actually include a password. So the user's not able to actually upload them. Of course, my favorite mistake of all is Emotet actually getting its botnet taken down because they don't know how to properly maintain their OPSEC. That was definitely by far the most uh, the most fun thing to see out of the lifetime of Emotet.
1: So this might be my actual favorite question that we received from alti 2 which is, Which email-based threat actor probably has the best taste in wine and which has the trashiest, guys? I like that this is an
0: homage to our wine fraud podcast Uh with Alan Liska from Recording Future. I think the trashiest, Sharon can tell us who has the best, but I think the trashiest, speaking of lapses, would be lapses. Talking about (laughs) a bunch of of, uh, young people operating out of the back of a truck or something, I, I can't imagine them having very
3: good taste. They're drinking like four Locos, man. Like like Steel Reserve, just the worst possible beer, something like that. Are,
2: are those legal? <laughs> those were banned when I was in college. They're British guys, right? Lapses are British guys. So what's the terrible? Everybody, tweet us. What's the worst alcohol that a, a British teen could get a hand uh, a hold of? I want some good answers. Yeah, what is that? Um, I definitely think the probably the best. Maybe not the best taste, but the biggest budget's gonna be Evil Core. I think uh Maxim is like a whole popping bottles out of his Ferrari or I don't know what those cars are, but you know, he always has like a million sports cars and all that stuff. I'm sure Hush Puppy's got got a little bit in the wine cellar too. He seems like the kind of guy who would invest in wine as an asset, which is weird. Well, we also have the TA544
0: constantly targeting Italy, uh the Italian language uh threat actor. So they might have uh, Some fancy tastes as well.
2: Um, Is that Italian Ursniff that you're talking about? It is. So some interesting stuff about Italian Ursniff. That actor, according to some of the researchers, a lot of the code has references to Russian slang in it. And so there's a theory that that actor is actually a Russian individual or Russian group, but based or partially based in Italy. And that's why they hit Italy so much, because they've got weird mashups of Italian and Russian slang in their code. So maybe they are trying to make that wine budget.
3: (laughs) Is it racist that they used uh, Mario in their steganography campaigns?
2: It is, 100%. And to add to that, I thought it was really funny. They used Mario to hit Italy, and then they used a sort of like montage of a bunch of designer... Um, fashion labels like Supreme, Gucci, Prada, YSL, St. Laurent to hit Japan. So it sort of reveals what the threat actor thinks is most appealing to these particular nationalities. Italy loves Mario. Japan loves luxury goods.
1: Oh, that is probably the best. Okay, we're pivoting here, guys. We're getting a little bit more serious-ish, right? From ML. if you could rename one threat actor or malware family, who would it be What would you rename them as and why?
2: This is very serious. I love this question. Hey, Zach, we love you. Okay, I'll go first. I would name Finn Seven to Finn Cinnabon because um, (laughs) (laughs) we caught them trying to socially engineer an employee of a baked goods company under the auspices that they needed to order a lot of cinnamon rolls for a birthday party and all the employee has to do is just open up this spreadsheet to see my order and I'm going to come pick up my Cinnabons for the birthday party. And the employee kept saying like, your spreadsheet doesn't work. Your spreadsheet doesn't work. Can you fax it? Can you fax it? And then eventually they gave up. So I would rename Finn 7 to Fin Cinnabon because uh, it's cute. And now I want a cinnamon roll. Yeah.
3: Yeah, so for me, I I don't know that I would necessarily rename a, a family so much as that I would enforce kind of the alternate name that never got picked up, right? Because Ooh. when like there's always a race. When new malware is discovered, if it's found by multiple entities that, you know, in close proximity to, to figure out who's going to be responsible for naming it. And really, it's like you crowdsource that, right? It's a matter of industry adoption, which one sticks. So uh, IcedID in, in will always be Bokbot to me. Shout out to my man, Ryan Tansebach who found that in NCFTA lab. And like ultimately, you know, X-Force's uh, designation of Ice ID stuck. But I I will always refer to it as Buckbot whenever I can.
1: So kind of going off of that, though, for me, I wouldn't rename anything. I just start getting rid of names. Like I hate like having numerous names for the exact same thing.
2: It just gets too confusing to me. Like, why do we have to have like? We should standardize on the TA numbers provided by Proofpoint.
0: Exactly. <laughs> or the malware It's easier. Provided by Proofpoint. <laughs> stop calling malware four different names if it's the same thing. I do have to say mine would be not necessarily a specific, I don't want to call anyone out specifically, but naming an actor and a malware the same name is so confusing. And yes. we collectively need to stop doing that. So I would rename all of those, but I'm not going to name any specifically. So no one gets their feelings hurt. So now pivoting to Tim's question, who those of you who have listened to some of our podcasts previously might recognize, he comes in with this hilarious question. If you had to turn to a life of e-crime, what would you do?
2: I mean, I think about this all the time. <laughs> I'm consumed by it. Every every other week when I get my paycheck, I think oh, I'm, ready. I'm ready for crime. So I would definitely 100% do really under the radar, nice invoice scams, I would get into invoicing systems at large companies and I would submit fake invoices to them after they'd certified me as an accepted vendor. And I would do probably 20 or $30,000 invoices. No, you know what I would do? I would do like a five to $10,000 invoice to five or six different companies and have them pay my invoices. Obviously, I would need to launder the money through Seychelles or something like that. I'm laundering the money. I'm get, I'm sending the invoices. So I get like a nice steady paycheck every month. I don't do the risk of ransomware. I just get that fake invoice paid every month and live off of that for the rest of my life.
1: Wow, you have this planned out.
2: <laughs> yeah, I do. 100%. Yours
1: is so much better than mine. Mine's like, oh, I'd come up with like the you know, the faux streaming services, but only like feel good movies because I want to put out some good vibes or something to do with, if anyone's heard of Panda Cheese commercials, it's the don't say no to Panda. So if you haven't seen it, go Google that. And that would be,
2: that would be mine.
1: Not nearly as lucrative.
3: So back in 2020, when we were running (laughs) some election Uh research, you know, I was looking for threats coming from a lot of different vectors. And I felt that there was a huge gap around the solicitation of political donations. For example, when red ask blue, I hunted all over the place for cloned portals uh, of these things and just didn't didn't find them. And so, uh, you know, I feel like if it's if it's ethically okay for politicians to run and and collect donations uh, with no intention of actually winning and just kind of like run off with their money, then what's really the harm in me standing up some portals and uh, soliciting donations to to you know my pack? I'll I'll make a pack, sure, no problem.
0: The Daniel Pack, I love it. So speaking of a life of crime, and I know that we all have opinions on this, but I'm particularly interested in Jared's. This question from Tony. FDA 667 what's your opinion on the rapid proliferation of post-exploitation frameworks and their integration into threat actor tools?
2: Okay, so is this essentially the Kobe Strikey question? Because it sounds Kobe like strike-y. it's what it is. Strikey! <laughs> so obviously, like, this is a really serious question in the industry, right? Is seeing the proliferation of essentially pen testing and security tools be leveraged and absor- adopted by threat actors to breach organizations right so they're taking legitimate things and they're breach organizations if you're not familiar with a young man named imposed cost on twitter andrew thompson first just he hugged me uh last week so we're friends no i really respect his commitment to being really focused on on stopping that and finding ways to get threat actors to not get their hands on these tools My feeling on it is that it's horrible. It's really difficult to deal with. We write constant detections for things that we consider to be legitimate tools if used by one group, but illegal criminal acts if used by another group. And it's the exact same tool, right? This is not something that I have an answer to. It's something that I'm deeply concerned about. But the reality is what we're doing right now is we're detecting and blocking them whenever we can. And we work with those tool uh, developers to try and get help with doing that. But until the security community as a whole comes to some kind of consensus we're just going to constantly be chasing after them and trying to detect and block them i hate it it's terrible i don't have a solution to this problem beyond trying everything that we can to stop them from getting into the organizations that we protect
3: yeah i don't have a lot to add cuz i'm just going to pile on and like end up beating a dead horse there right it's it's kind of hard to keep them from getting into the hands of threat actors when they're just uh, open source available on github You know,
2: and and there's Uh, an incentive too for organizations that develop these tools. You know, they're they're just users as far as a lot of those organizations are concerned. All right.
1: I'm going to now take a question right from Alan Liska, and that is a how does Greggles associate scanned or discovered C2 infrastructure with different groups? So clearly, instead of having any of us answer this, we reached out to Greg and here's what he had to say.
4: Uh, I think like anything else in our space, the answer is rarely straightforward. In the targeted threat space, sometimes you'll find that every C2 server that you see on the internet is attributable to a single cluster of activity, whether that is a user of it or a particular family. Um, But oftentimes, especially in the realm of publicly available or privately shared tooling, uh, you can only look at the scan data as a very small piece of the puzzle. Layering the data with SSL certificate issuers and hosting provider can be a really good start uh, to start bucketing those things into smaller data sets. But often you'll have to rope in passive DNS and Whois data to properly analyze the entirety of the data set. You can also extend that to fully profiling the C2 and its services, um, open ports and uh, other tooling or responses visible from just a generic uh, connection request. And that really helps filter, say, like, you know, a, a 60 or 100 um, server data set into at least some clusters where you can find some uh, easy overlaps and start to bucket those into um, to different groups. But uh, even then, from things like Cobalt Strike uh, or any of the OST frameworks that are out there uh, to private shared tools like PlugX and ShadowPad, there are often enough outliers that you just have to monitor for uh sightings of those ips or those domains in different data sets whether that's in ir managed data if you see it in email samples and i think a really good example of that we can take from the monitoring of things like botnets where sometimes we can only suss out what's affiliate or cluster a c2 belongs in once we see samples that show that in their configs As an example, um, some QBot users last year used a series of campaigns named after former U.S. presidents. Uh, Each sample from each sample of QBot in that campaign or those series of campaigns would have roughly 140 IP addresses in uh, its embedded configuration. But if you looked at the scan data, and every sort of server that responded, we'll just say looks like a QuackBot or a QBot uh, server. Uh, There were roughly 300 of those hosts online at a given time. In that case, uh, we had to rely on observing a sample and checking its campaign ID, uh, and its listed C2 addresses, both that we pulled out of the config, uh, to determine which part of the botnet belonged to each cluster. Otherwise, we just sort of had this list of IP addresses and across a bunch of different uh, hosting providers, that didn't really tell us any story because there wasn't additional data to sort of layer on top of it. Uh, and so sometimes it's it's very simple in the sense of it is as based on the hosting provider and the SSL certificate, you can pretty easily point it to a specific group, uh, or at least with a moderate amount of confidence. Uh, but most of the time it is create a generic looking cluster and send it uh, onward to, to different monitoring sets. And with that, I'll kick it back over to Sherrod, Selena, uh, Daniel, and Krista to add anything else.
0: You know, I don't think I have anything to add, except we should totally get Greg Lesniewicz, our DPRK analyst, back to have a full episode on that topic. We have another question here from Alan Liska. What are Dansomeware? Daniel, here with us today, thoughts on Kenny Pickett?
3: Yeah, I'm glad that we can answer, you know, a meaningful question uh related to all of the other ones right yeah so can Pickett, pick a quarterback of the pittsburgh steelers former quarterback of the Pitt panthers my alma mater took us to the uh conference championship last year what are my thoughts my thoughts are he's the future my thoughts are he is the truth okay there are a lot of spoiled sports fans in in pittsburgh you know for good reason they expect a championship every single year I don't. I understand that there's a retooling process. I don't expect a rookie to come out of the gate and and uh, be league MVP, okay? He's a work in progress, as are we all. But, he's, you know, he's, he's a fighter. He's a champion. He's got poise in the pocket. He'll stand in there and take the hit. I've seen enough. I'm sold.
2: That was a lot of passion. I don't know what half those words even mean.
0: I was going to
1: say (laughs) that was a lot more passion behind that response than I was anticipating. Totally.
0: And you know what? I love that you brought up sports because another frequent guest on this podcast, Joe Wise, always references sports and Krista and I often have to Google when he leaves this podcast, who he is talking to. I think Patrick Mahomes was one. So I learned, I learned about that guy, but Joe actually had a question for us that he tweeted into the podcast. Why do some threat actors use the same C2 command and control for months or years? Did they just pick a super cool name for it and don't want to change it? Why uh, does something like that remain consistent?
3: I'll jump on that one. I, I think the the real answer that you're looking for is that they're lazy. Threat actors who are not state-aligned, you know, this this is, uh, in, in some cases, it's a side hustle. In some cases, you know, they're going to take long breaks over the summer. How seriously are they even treating this? No, no, some threat actors are lazy. But I think in a lot of cases, too, you just have, you know, bulletproof hosting that is... Uh, not gonna be taken down, you know, it's in a it's in a country that is not gonna extradite, they're not gonna cooperate with law enforcement. Why bother changing it, right? It's almost part of your brand. Uh, there's just, you know, there's not really necessarily a need. Not everyone has proof point and is gonna have some reputation-based condemnation. As long as you're continuing to get hits, get clicks, then if it's not broken, why fix it?
1: Anybody have anything else they wanna to add to that? I mean, that was a really perfect answer, Daniel. You're completely spot on. And now I have one from Benny's dad, a.k.a. also Selena's husband. And I like this question a lot. Uh, and it's kind of a little bit on laziness, but maybe more researcher laziness. Which actor or region flies way under the radar, but is actually very interesting, and why is it Latin America? Selena. I feel like this,
0: this question came with some, some baggage or perhaps fueled by conversations over the dinner table. I personally think that... There is a lot of interesting actors that are operating in places in the global South, in Latin America, and in Central America, and don't get really all that much research or attention. Whether it's it's, uh, e-crime that are doing kind of fun stuff, banking trojans are crazy in South America. I track some interesting thought actors that are targeted e-crime actors that are doing some interesting stuff there. But I think overall in the researcher community, we do tend to focus on the big four, right? The APTs, uh, state-sponsored, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran. And I think that I personally really like tracking actors operating in Latin America. It's also interesting given the economic interests in a lot of these countries. for example, Latin and South America are very resource rich, key points for shipping and logistics. Uh, and many global firms operate out of those markets. I also mentioned earlier the Philippines and Southeast Asia targeting actor, which is another geographic area with lots of, for example, shipping and supply chain and manufacturing interests.
2: Yeah, the Brazilian bankers have made a good showing over the past couple of years. I think um, and and this will be true, you know, over time as as the world evolves developing countries are not going to be as attractive. Developing regions are not going to be as attractive to threat actors because they just don't have the cash in the bank. If you had a choice between hitting a South American country or hitting something in the heart of Europe where, you know, it's a banking center, they have lots of cash to steal, you're going to go after the place where the money is. But seeing South America come up more and more on the landscape, as we have, I think shows that there is sort of a a curve up and to the right of, South American and, and in developing countries globally coming onto the radar of threat actors who might see it as a less protected, more attractive uh, region to hit.
3: Kind of piggybacking off of that, too, I think uh, we definitely have seen a huge proliferation of mobile malware, Android-based malware in Latam and certainly Brazil specifically and you wonder if you know the the individual end users and their various bank accounts aren't more of a target than the the corporate accounts kind of for that that same developmental reason, right? Threat actors have kind of just shifted uh, to operate maybe more at scale, a scale model versus a high value target model. But I, you know, I think we constantly are looking for mobile malware to proliferate uh, across the world. It's been like this topic of like, what's coming next, future predictions for the last like five years, maybe even longer than that. But I think that's one region where you actually have seen it kind of spread and develop. And there are so many permutations of kind of Android based bankers.
2: Yeah, a quick shout out to the uh, mobile expert on my team who operates out of South America, a very talented fellow that we've worked with for many years. So shout out to you.
3: All right, moving on to the next question. This is from Anon. I don't know if this is like uh, an archetypal Anon, if it's an actual anonymous user, if it's someone who goes by Anon, I don't know. But this is from Anon. And it's for Selena and Krista. Are you tracking any threat actors or are there any threat actors that are targeting sports-related entities, especially, you know, with the World Cup's happening this month? I'm super hyped for it. I'm a big soccer fan. I don't care what other Americans think.
0: I am a soccer fan thanks to Welcome to Wrexham shout out to Ryan Reynolds soccer team from an e-crime perspective. We always see threat actors kind of use lures that are related to popular events and things happening in the landscape or in the world and applying it to the landscape, nothing, uh, super high volume or, or specific. So it's, it's, we see it occasionally, but
1: right now, nothing super notable to report. And on the APT side, guys, I got nothing for you to share at this time related to sports sorry.
3: I think we always get kind of this question, you know, because topical events are used so frequently in social engineering, we get questions like this. And I think an important thing to remember is that threat actor groups who are targeting the World Cup event don't necessarily need to use World Cup themed material, right? So we uh, there, there's lots of infrastructure being built in uh, Qatar right now. There is a huge kind of global supply chain and, and uh, travel relative to this event. Th- those are all targets that might see kind of the same day-to-day invoicing, requests for quote, airline ticket type lures. And they don't expressly have World Cup themes, but you know, in a way it might be World Cup related.
2: So Greg writes in, what's an actor that you don't track, that you have a wandering eye for, could be internal to the threat research team or that another vendor has seen, but makes you say they'd be fun, rewarding or whatever to track. So it's actually internal, something that is very exclusive and fun and cool to working at a threat research vendor or a security vendor is that we actually track private red teams. We do have occasional threat actors assigned to them internally only, which means those of you that work red team and those of you that work pen testing, we see you. We track you. We give you a T.A. number that you will never know. And um, I really love that. I think it's just it's such a fantastic victory for us when we stop red team. We're not really blue team because we're not internal. We make a security product, but we track actors. And if your red team gets on our radar enough, you know who you are. We track you. We put a profile together and we throw you in our dashboard internally. So I actually would really love to track external red teams a little bit more. We we love blocking you and we love keeping intel on you. I'll tell you guys who it is later. Okay,
3: good. (laughs) Good, because I'm like, I
1: don't know
0: which one you're talking about. I mean, I think I know, but yeah. So I would say uh, an actor that I think is very interesting. I am uh, very much focused on e-crime, targeted e-crime, but I always think it's interesting when I see something happening with Ocean Lotus, APT32, uh, operating out of Vietnam. I do think that some of their targeting has been super interesting, automotive targeting to potentially support some of the stuff going on in, in that country from an economic and business perspective. So Yeah. Ocean Lotus, I think they're fun.
3: Dude, I get super jealous over anyone who has the ability to track you know, actors that don't rely kind of on mail flow as their distribution mechanism, right? So people who are exploiting you know, uh, misconfigurations or open RDP ports and they get in and, and we just like really, really have to work to get any visibility or, or even correlate you know, with others in the research community to uh, get activity there. And I think someone who just like burned us was uh no Kibi before they retired, right? Because the, there was a period of, I don't know, three months where they were actually, this is like right after... Gant Crab called it quits and people were speculating that Sody No Kiwi was just kind of like a rebrand. But they ran mail campaigns for, I don't know, three or four months. I think the last one we saw was like October 2019 or something like that. Um, and then just dead silent. Never saw him again uh, in, in email. And I was just like, I lost the visibility. This I, I hated it. So, yeah, I get super jealous.
1: Speaking of potentially making people jealous, Kevin Collier writes in, which cyber reporter is best?
2: Kevin Collier. Next question. He really set us up for that. <laughs> what what else am I gonna say besides that? Kevin Collier is the best. Great. <laughs> signal, send me a signal message and I'll I'll tell you the real story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I want the real story. Okay, Daniel, I think you got the next question.
2: Yeah,
3: cool. So Ian Seabrook asks. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone research career curious that's not read X or uh, network on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have any like actual advice? I think Sharon's probably perfect to answer this one.
2: I'm sorry. I'm not going to stop saying it until every single person on earth knows how to read a PCAP. Look, look, bust out Wireshark. It's all free. You can make a PCAP in your sleep. If you don't understand networking at a, a reasonably expert level depth, you're not you're not at a disadvantage. So, bust out Wireshark, start looking at malicious pcaps. It is one of the most valuable skills that you can have. People that are able to do that and identify malicious activity will have a job for life. Side note, Chris Sanders courses,
0: he has a really great pcap analysis course that mm-hmm. I've taken and I know multiple people have. So, if you're looking for a place to get started, check out Chris Sanders pcap analysis. All right, we have a question from Mindy who Sits in our podcast, our lovely producer, and she asks, in the last five years, what is one thing that has shocked you most um, about the threat landscape, about threat actors, etc.
2: Uh, so for me, there's one thing that threat actors have, that threat actors always have, and that's the audacity. They will do horrible, horrible things. The queen's death hey, you're getting divorced. Your child has died. I have food poisoning and it's because of something you fed me. Like horrible, horrible, horrible social engineering lures. And I am sort of a a credulous person in a lot of ways. I'm sort of naive in a lot of ways. I am always shocked. I am constantly shocked at the depths of depravity that threat actors will go to during the height of the pandemic. You know, lures that said, you've tested positive for COVID-19 And here's a list of everyone you know who has tested positive. Here's a list of all of your neighbors and their status of disease. Just really horrible things. So I think um, I have been shocked and continue to be shocked at the kinds of lures the threat actors will use in their social engineering. It's, It's bonkers and it just keeps getting worse. Those are great. I think from a different perspective, the thing that shocked me the most was
0: the sort of collective not paying attention to ransomware until an oil and gas company and a meat plant got popped. And then it was like, oh, wait, we should take this seriously, even though ransomware has been impacting uh, education, hospitals, uh, local communities for years. Uh, But I think that was kind of a little bit shocking to me. We're still it's good that we've we've taken action on it now. And and it's we've seen some changes in the ransomware threat landscape for sure. But that, I think, was a little bit
1: of a "Eh," for me. So for me, I think it's actually still been like a business email compromise. It's not to me being taken as seriously as it should be by people, like despite the financial impact it can have. So that, that's mine. You
3: no, know, for me, the most surprising thing is how hard it is not to get an end user to click enable macros. Like It's not the threat <laughs> landscape that is surprising me. It, it's It's how... Threat actors can get people to jump through so many hoops, right? I think like as part of defeating kind of all of these automated defenses that we put in place, you now have to like mount an ISO, double click, you know, open it up, like manually run a DLL, enable macros, call someone and manually install malware on your machine. And yet it continues to be effective. So... You know, we need to make some strides in, in, on the training side. We need to bring some, some more high, hardcore uh, academics into this field and get them to, to really, uh, I don't know, help us train end users. They, they're the ones who shock me.
0: And I think we have time just for one more question, again from Mindy. What else would you be doing if you weren't fighting the bad guys as your job?
2: it. If I wasn't fighting the bad guys as my job, I would fight bad guys as my hobby. okay well so I think um I'm really mission driven it's a calling for me I love the internet I do it for the lulls I do everything for the lulls and if the lulls don't flow then I get upset so I definitely have a deep care around that as a hobby but professionally if money wasn't an object I would work at the donkey sanctuary in Sidmouth Devon England on the uh, west coast of England where it's 500 acres of Sanctuary donkeys that I could pet and bring my dog and hang out with them and like play croquet in the afternoons
0: along the lines of outdoor vibes, I would own a running slash coffee shop, uh, like running store slash coffee shop and host an annual ultra marathon race in uh, the woods somewhere. So that would be my that's what
1: I would be doing. God be careful. So I would own a bookstore next to Selena's running store coffee shop, yeah. uh Or I do something in nutritional epidemiology. So completely different.
3: I didn't realize that we were putting our dream our dream jobs out here. I didn't understand (laughs) that that was the assignment. I'm like, yeah, I'd probably I'd probably be developing software. Lame, super lame.
1: (laughs) Psychological. For
0: cancer research. <laughs> so developing software for saving the world. What
2: kind of software would you want to make?
3: I the kind that paid me the most.
2: Oh my god. Wow. I'm glad you're here, Daniel, because Krista and Selena and I, this place would fall apart with us just running the place. It's a good thing that you're here to help us. <laughs> dreams. Big dreams. No,
3: I mean, honestly, 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 I, I, I like interesting data sets. That's what brought me to Proofpoint in the first place. So, you know, big data analysis, get get an interesting data set in front of me that I can crunch and munge and analyze and and I'll be happy. But uh, just just to riff, my... my Not really dream job, but something a little less boring. Professional poker player. High stakes tables. Sit sit me down. Let's go. Let's get a game going.
2: Can you count cards? Wow. All right. Of course I can count cards. Daniel, someday when I meet you in person, you have to teach me. No problem. I'm ready. Poker. Threat Research Poker Night. We're all empty in our pockets. Daniel's taking us to the cleaners.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, everyone who sent in questions to our lovely panel and some outside guests that we had on. Uh, Thank you, Sheridan and Daniel, for joining us as always. Terrific guests. This was so much fun. And I hope
2: we can do this again very soon. Thanks, Selena. Thanks, Krista. Daniel, as always a pleasure to uh, be able to do things with you, which I don't get to do enough of. (laughs) Until next time, happy hunting. Email, social media, and mobile devices are the
0: tools of your trade. And for cybercriminals, the tools of attack. Proofpoint protects your people, data, and brand against advanced threats and compliance risks. Learn more on our Threat Insight blog at proofpoint.com. You've been listening to Discarded, Tales from the Threat Research Trenches, a podcast
1: by Proofpoint. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show and your favorite podcast player.
4: Happy hunting.